0: Welcome to Bible Greek v Intermediate Greek Program. This is Lesson 3. In this lesson, you will learn the genitive case, and then we will look at 1 John 1, verses 3 through 5. First off, there's two types of students who usually enter the second-year Greek. This is usually the second-year Greek, intermediate Greek. So there's usually two types of students, two extremes of students who enter the class. There are some... Of you who have mastered your first-year Greek and you're you're very capable and you can translate with ease and then at the other extreme are those of you who still struggle with your translations and are a little timid at translating well this is the year that is a second year Greek where you will translate and it will come out as heresy that's just the way it goes that's your you're you're getting your your walking legs there and that's just what's going to happen I don't care what kind of experience you are from the one extreme to the other you will translate heresy so I I, I ask you to please check your uh, translation against some of the good translations of the Bible the uh, NASB is a good translation the new King James um, several translations, translations there you can check your um, your work against and uh, sanity check those because uh, you will you will notice uh, that you are going to translate some weird stuff and 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 you're going to be you're going to think that's the way it's translated and you just need to check it so let's get to the genitive the genitive is the case of description it specifies or it qualifies the word it modifies and it serves to define, describe, qualify, restrict, or limit the idea. The basic meaning comes from the Greek genos, meaning kind, uh, or possessing the same kind. The Greek genitive functions much like the English, but it's more versatile and is used in ways the English is not. This versatility is found in the fact that the genitive case covers about 25% of the cases of the New Testament. The genitive limits as to kind, while the accusative limits as to extent. For example, the accusative, he worked the day, means he worked through a portion of the day or throughout the day. The genitive, however, means he worked in the daytime and not in the night. The genitive serves to limit or reduce the range of reference to an idea, confining the extent to a specific limits. Inherent in the idea of the genitive is the meaning of attribution. Attribution comes to the English from the Latin attribuere, meaning to allot to, to assign to and it appears next to the main or the head noun. For example, the genitive expresses an essential quality, as in the expression, an evil heart of unbelief. The descriptive genitive expresses quality, like an adjective, but with more clarity. Now, the genitive usually comes after the main noun, but it can appear first, as in the typical emphatic usage. It is also common to find the genitives lined up in a string of two or more in some literary context. Now let's go through the uses of the genitive. Again several authors will have different uses that they describe in their text. The first use we have is the genitive of description. The genitive of description is the usage closest to its root meaning. All genitives are more or less descriptive. But the genitive of description can be uniquely identified by replacing the word of with the words characterized by or described by. For example, Mark 1.4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and, here it is, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Repentance further describes... This baptism that John is, is preaching. Next we have the genitive of possession. The genitive of possession conveys, conveys the idea of ownership. To denote ownership is to make one noun the attribute of another in relation of privilege or prerogative. Saying it another way, the genitive modifies the noun by identifying the person who owns it. For example in Luke 5.3 Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. It just describes whose boat it belonged to. To identify the genitive of possession, ask the question, can the word of be replaced by the word belonging to or possessed by? Another example would be 1 Corinthians 1.12. I am Paul, and I am of Apollos. Next we have the genitive of relationship. The genitive of relationship defines the familial relationship either by marriage or a progenitor. For example, in Acts 13.22, David, the son of Jesse, notice that. The word son is not even there. The genitive expresses essential relationship as in the popular expression, the kingdom of God. The meaning is the kingdom related to God. Another important theological use is in the relationship of Jesus to the Father, the Son of God, and then Jesus related to mankind, the Son of Man. Both these expressions have the essential idea of Christ being the legal representative of God on earth and the legal representative of man and could be expressed the Son related to God and the son related to mankind. Next, we have the genitive of content. The genitive of content modifies the main noun or verb by denoting its contents. An example is John 21, 8. Dragging the net with fish. See that contents is implied there. It has the fish in the contents. When used with the verb, the idea is given by the translation with instead of of as in John 2, 7. Fill the water pots with water. Then we have this important theological construction used of the filling of the Holy Spirit, like in Luke 1:15, And he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit. Next, we have the genitive of material. A genitive of material modifies the main noun by identifying the material it is made of. An exam- there are many examples. One example is... Colossians 1.22 In the body of his flesh means his body is made of flesh. Another usage is the adverbal genitive. The adverbal genitive relates a verbal idea attributing local or temporal relations. For example, the temporal, the genitive of time. A genitive of time expresses when an action happens. So in John 3.2 He came to him by night. It means he came to him sometime in the night. It's the genitive of time, temporal relationship. Then the genitive of place. The genitive of place is also called the genitive of space and identifies where the action takes place. For example, in Luke 16, 24, in order that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, That implies a place, a space. Then there is the genitive of reference. The genitive of reference limits the descriptive force to a particular frame of reference and can be translated with respect to or in reference to. For example, in Hebrews 3.12, An evil heart of unbelief. The heart's frame of reference is in unbelief. You could actually say that was a state of being. Genitives with nouns of action. A noun in the genitive can signify action. In this case, the genitive noun indicates the thing that the action is referred and can be as the subject or the object of the verbal idea. It can serve as the subject or the object. First, we have the subjective genitive. The, this construction occurs when the noun in the genitive produces the action. An example is found in Mark 5, 2. And when he came out of the boat. Then you can have the objective genitive. The construction occurs when the noun in the genitive receives the action. Remember the subjunctive genitive produces the action. The objective genitive receives the action. So an example is Matthew twelve thirty one. But the blasphemy of the spirit shall not be forgiven. There's receiving the action. Next we have the genitive of opposition. The genitive of opposition explains or identifies the main noun providing additional information. The genitive stands in exact opposition with the noun it modifies. The meaning can be expressed further by the addition of that is or namely or Which is. An example is John 2.21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Which has the meaning, but he was speaking of the temple that is his body. Finally, we have the partitive genitive. The partitive genitive modifies the main noun by denoting which part it is identified with. Instead of the word of, you can substitute the words which is a part of. For example, Mark 2, 6. Certain ones of the scribes. See, they are part of the group of scribes. Next, let's move on to our translation work with First John. Last time, when we looked at the first part of this translation, we looked at the introduction. The introduction is verses uh, 1 through chapter 2, verse 6. Now, the first part, verses 1 through 4, John gives the purpose for writing. And then in verse 5, he gives that specific message that he has defined. So it can be further broken down. Verses 1 and 2, we saw last time, it is a historical message. The message that was received and which is translated is a historical message. And involved Jesus Christ as its central core. Now we move to verse 3. Verse 3 the message brings us into fellowship. Now go get your detailed analysis from the website for John 1 John 1 3 and let's look at the details of this. Now normally in your translation work you want to identify the verb and the subject, the nominative case and and then the object the accusative case, and, and that helps out greatly. But notice here in verse 3, we have a whole bunch of verbs that are all placed in this big, huge, massive verb phrase. In the first phrase, we have it starting out with a relative pronoun, hos. And it's, again, their accusative uh, neuter singular relative pronoun, that which refers to those things, that which was heard and known. Then we have this set of perfect verbs, one right after the other. The perfect active indicative, first person plural, one right after the other. rakamen from the verb horeo, to see with the eyes, uh, see with the mind, what we have seen. And then the perfect active indicative, first person plural, akuo, to hear, what we have heard. And then, after we find the perfects, we have the present active indicative first person plural, just a bunch of verbs. This is the action section, the action phrase, a verb phrase. The present active indicative first person plural, ap from ap to bring tidings, to proclaim, to make known. We are making known to you. And it goes like this. What we have seen and heard we are making known to you. What we have seen and heard in the past and have been convinced of, we continue to proclaim to you. That's what these perfects all blend in together to make. The perfects we have seen and we have heard are completed acts whose effect continues up to the point of this writing. The proclamation is a continuous act by that present tense, brings out a continuous act of proclaiming the word of God to the people of the church, even the church in Ephesus. It is as though the things referred to in verses 1 and 2 are those things that we have accumulated over time from the writings of the Old Testament to those of the apostles and the other New Testament writers and is passed down from church to church in what will eventually be the collection of writings known as the New Testament. John's letter to this church can be dated to sometime about the 90s. This makes him the last of the New Testament authors. It's not known precisely which writings of the New Testament John and the church in Ephesus had, but the writings were passed from church to church. Paul is said to have started the church in Ephesus, in Acts 18:19. In fact, he stayed there a couple of years and taught there in a seminary, kind of the world's first seminary, if you will. And he stayed there some time. But it is John who went, and he stayed, and he nourished that church until his death of an old age. He is the only apostle that tradition has, or tradition says, was not martyred. The fact that John includes others in this proclamation we are making known that the first person plural we are making known to you points to the fact that there is a group of proclaimers where Paul uses good news John uses apangelo bring tidings to proclaim to make known from the compound apo out of an angela a messenger or an envoy uh, one who is sent with a message so the present tense relates to that idea of we continue to make known. The next phrase is a henna clause. A henna clause is very important. It, it gives you the purpose. It, give, it presents the purpose. So we have the henna clause and it starts out with uh, come along and we have the personal pronoun second neuter plural uh, from Sue, you. And then we find the accusative here. The accusative neuter, singular. Kaiona, fellowship, association. Then there's a verb here. A present active subjunctive second person plural. From echo, to have or to hold. And then the meta, with. Hamen, hamon. The pre- personal pronoun, first person genitive plural. Us and in order that you might have fellowship with us. See, the purpose is given uh, to have fellowship. The henna, with the present subjunctive echo, to have or to hold, is translated, you all might have, and presents the purpose as a continuous walk in the word. The idea is that they continue to have kyona fellowship. The subject there is fellowship. When speaking of believers in fellowship with one another, it is an association based on the message of Christ. Robinson calls it the sharing partnership. The purpose of the fellowship gathering is to speak of what Christ has done, to speak of the things of God. A gathering in fellowship with fellow believers must involve Christ as its central discussion. The central point of our fellowship involves what we have seen and heard and made known regarding Jesus Christ. Let's move to the next phrase. We find our nominative. The nominative feminine singular, kiona. Fellowship is the nominative. And moreover, I translate the conjunction as a moreover, our fellowship is with the Father, Patar, and with the Son of Him, Jesus Christ. The construction, the fellowship, that which is ours, fits with the subject. Vincent's right, ours, possessive instead of personal pronoun. See that unusual construction there, hematra, is an adjective. It's an adjective, nominative, feminine, singular, not a personal pronoun. So Vincent writes, our, possessive instead of personal pronoun, indicates fellowship as a distinguishing mark. Of Christians rather than merely something enjoyed by them. This fellowship is with the Father, and as if to be as clear as possible, John tightly links this fellowship we have with the Father and the Son by using the same preposition meta twice. It is as though he is saying, Fellowship with the Father is the same as fellowship with the Son an equality is established between the father and his son jesus christ and moreover this fellowship we have is with the common bond we have fellowship because he reconciled us back to him by his son christ came in the flesh lowering himself a little lower than the angels in order to present mankind to represent mankind on the cross That is our common bond that reconciles us to God, making fellowship possible. That perfect Lamb of God uh, paid the price on the cross, making that reconciliation possible. Moreover, this fellowship with God involves righteousness. Notice what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? In essence, John writes, "...we are in fellowship as witnesses of Jesus Christ." The Holy Spirit is notably absent from this introductory statement because the object of John's proclamation is that Jesus is God, an independent person of the Godhead, and exists glorified without this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit." John uniquely identifies the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in order to separate them as unique persons, but links them as co-equal. The theological term Trinity was born out of this. That God exists as three persons, yet they are one, one in essence. The scriptures clearly teach that God exists in three persons, not three gods or one God manifesting himself in some three different modes of existence, like the modern-day modelists. Dr. Ryrie provides a modern definition of the Trinity like this. In the one living and true God, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons, the same in substance, but distinct in essence. But John does not leave out the Holy Spirit in this letter letter, because the believer is indwelt by the Spirit. He did not leave us orphans. He left us a helper. Next we come to verse 4. Verse 4 presents this writing as being meant to bring joy. While verse 3 presented the message As bringing us into fellowship, verse 4, brings this message. This writing is meant to bring joy. The first clause. You notice the verb there is a present active indicative. Grapho. Again, a first person plural. And it says, and these things we are writing to you. The demonstrative is the neuter plural. The demonstrative tuta. So the translation is these things. There's a plurality there. And as before, they refer to all things seen, heard, and touched. The Apostle John seeks to document all these things to them, but what he desires is either that we write, meaning there are multiple writers along with John, that is the Apostles and the other New Testament authors, or that John is documenting their testimonies collectively either way the message concerns what is heard, seen and touched and further links the uniqueness of their fellowship which speaks of what they have in common in Christ namely that there are in Christ this in Christ is a technical term for the church It is relates our position in Christ we are positionally in Christ in that His work on the cross satisfies a legal transaction. Being in Christ means that we have been legally acquitted. We have been made righteous. We are seen as being righteous because of what God has done, not because of what we do or have done, but what what God has done, what Christ has done on the cross. So that's a technical term. So we move from this being in Christ, our position is a, a state of being, of being saved, to our walk, our experiential. Our position is saved. Our walk is another matter. That's what is called sanctification. And that experiential walk is our daily walk in this uh, cesspool down here, and we get dirty. So let's look at the next phrase. The next phrase is a hina clause, again. And again, notice, we have our nominative, our subject, here. And the subject here is joy. And then we have this personal pronoun, first genitive plural, hemon. And then we have, hey, a present active subjunctive, third person single singular, followed by a perfect passive participle nominative feminine, single, in order that our joy might be made complete. Now the purpose of this writing is made known by this henna clause, again, that, or in order that, our the joy of us might be made complete. The subjunctive of, subjunctive of to be, it, that is the joy, might be in a state of being. It might be gives us that possibility, that subjunctive gives us the possibility of a state of being as being complete. The first hint of clause concerns the believer's fellowship. The second hint of clause concerns the person's joy. Salvation involves reconciliation and being in right relationship with God. And that results in joy. John and all Christians are commanded to spread this message and make disciples to the ends of the earth. That's what is referred to as bearing much fruit. So in John 15, 8-11, John writes this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. John speaks about abide in my love in this particular letter a lot. This is a a letter of application. Abiding in Christ means being in his word, being close to him. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. There's possibility there. This joy speaks of a progressive joy. As the perfect participle speaks of a process, and that joy builds. Their joy is possible as the subjunctive brings out. The purpose of writing this letter is to describe how their joy might be made complete. The ultimate fulfillment of this state of joy is found in the completed state. Namely, being in fellowship with God brings joy, or more precisely, our reconciliation. At the point of our salvation, it places us in fellowship and our joy in that state of being is complete. But the passive reflects God's work in us, either as progressive through our experiential walk being in Christ, but ultimately seen as His sovereignty brings us to glorification at the point of the rapture or our resurrection. There's a textual variant here, as the copyist added the plural, you, that your joy might be made complete. Notice what Linsky writes, misunderstanding scribes altered the text. See, he's very bold about this. He's very opinionated about this, and I agree with Linsky. They thought that John should say these things we are writing to you in order that your joy may be full." Uh, Grammars like Robinson um, and and others support this thought by asserting that graphomen is a literary plural. Notice how their logic goes. This has, we are writing equals I am writing. In one sentence, there are no less than 11 we verbs. To say nothing of the we and the our pronouns, and now one of these we forms is to be regarded as an editorial I, this does not seem likely. I, I agree with Linsky on this. It just does not make sense at all. Now we move to verse five. Verse five gives us the message that is defined. The first phrase we find a conjunction and then this demonstrative pronoun feminine singular. Notice the, the feminine singular, this or that, which represents a feminine noun, and then the present active indicative first person, uh, third person singular, estin, the to be verb. But here is the nominative feminine singular with a definite article. Epangala. And then we have an, uh, another perfect active indicative first person plural, akuo, to hear. Uh, to hear apo, from, him, atu, kai. And notice this. The verb form and angala men. The present active indicative first person plural of whom in and, and whom in. Uh, the personal pronoun, second dated plural. You. So it goes something like this. And this is the message that we have heard from him and we are bringing to you. The feminine demonstrative pronoun points to the message that is heard. There is a textual variant here. Some manuscripts have ep the nominative feminine singular with a definite article, an announcement, a promise, from this compound of epi, uh, over or upon, anglas, that messenger, the message, the one sent, where other manuscripts have angla, the nominative feminine singular, a message or announcement. Either way you take it. Both nouns have the common root as the message, and it is the message that is. What continues to be proclaimed as the present active indicative of esten is used. But note the perfect active indicative, aku'amen, from the root aku'o, to hear, we have heard, meaning our hearing is a completed act. The message is heard and repeated from generation to generation. The source of this message has come apo'atu, from him, and means Jesus himself has given the message, He has come in the flesh and manifested the Father to us. What we know about God is revealed in two ways. General revelation, which is that revelation concerning God by natural means, and it reaches all people. It's common to everybody. Then there is special revelation, which comes by various means to various people, but that which has been revealed to us and written down in the Bible. This verse refers to the doctrine of special revelation. The incarnation of Christ is described as the most pure of revelations about God to mankind. Jesus exegeted the Father, revealing the nature, the glory, the wisdom, the power, and the love of God to mankind. That is special revelation. Notice John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How do we know truth? We know truth because of special revelation, what God has revealed to us. The next phrase starts with a haughty, the hati conjunction, that or because, uh, since. And then we find the nominative case here. The subject here is God, uh, the God. And then this neuter uh, singular, phoas, uh, light, that the god light is. And skota, nominative feminine singular. Notice that. And skota, in ato, in him, uk, not, estin, is. Udamai, that's a fascinating little adjective. It's a compound. U is not. And, and it's an adjective, a nominative feminine singular, so is uh, no one or nothing. So it's, I translate it, that God is light and there is no darkness in him, none. This message concerns God. This equivalence of him, namely Jesus Christ and God, is linked as an inseparable unit. An equivalence is established that the personal pronoun him is God. The purpose of the pronoun is to replace the noun. So the chain is his son Jesus Christ in verse 3 is equal to him which is equal to God. The message concerns the fact that God is light and there is no darkness in him. The use of the word light used here is obviously metaphorical. God is not a photon. The contrast of light and darkness points to a spiritual discernment. That is inherent in God who defines what is good from evil. As the metaphors used express the two extremes, light and dark. How does one tell when the author is using a word metaphorically? The test is that if the thing is impossible to be in its natural state, then the word must be used metaphorically. God is not a photon. He is spirit. Next, the thing that is being described as a metaphor possesses some characteristic, some quality of the metaphor. What characteristic of light is God? Light is pure. It exposes or brings what is hidden to the eye into sight. Or you could say spiritually, what is hidden in the heart, open. He opens the eyes of the heart and reveals are sin through conviction. But scripture has to reveal what the word means to relate it in its context. Scripture interprets scripture. The Apostle John uses this language often in his writings. In John 1, 4, In him was life, and this life was the light of men, reflecting not just spiritual life, but creation and preservation of physical life and the light shines in the darkness but the darkness did not comprehend it that next verse in in john 1 5 specifies the spiritual condition of mankind in his fallen estate we are depraved individuals who will not accept the things of god and jesus is this true light which gives light to every man coming into the world and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and that men love darkness rather than light see that That metaphor there of light and dark is very rich throughout John. This light of the world exposes the evil deeds of men, exposing what is right and what is wrong. I hope you have enjoyed this lesson. So now, go translate verses 6 through 10 and come back for the next lesson.